Well, good evening. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be in Colossians tonight. If if you're here, was anybody here in Sunday school class I covered this morning? A couple of folks. Okay, you're gonna hear kind of the, kind of the same thing for a couple of reasons. One, this is Dwayne actually hit me up the other day and said, just in case I get sick and it takes me out Sunday morning, you might want to kind of have one in the holster. And this is the one that I had. And then and then Judy went down. And uh, Jackie was out of commission, and they, uh, Judy gave me this morning and said, any ideas? I said, well, okay, I'll, I can cover since, you know, I have something, something ready. So it probably wasn't a normal lesson, but, um, and when he said this morning after church, he's, he's just out of gas. Man, after church, you were just out of gas. He said, I'll be there, but I don't have another one in me. Can you cover tonight, too? It's okay, though, because this, this passage is one of my favorite, favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, particularly verses 21 and 22 uh, and 23 in chapter 1. We're going to be in chapter 1. Um, I call those couple of verses, I've given it the name, uh, the Holy Exchange. Actually, this, this message I call a preeminently Holy Exchange, and you'll find out why in just a little bit. Um, it's just one of my favorite passages of Scripture, um, probably because this is, this is the first one that I can remember um, and I may have I may have spoken on this before, but this is one of those that you can just keep going back to and back. It's like the well; you can keep going back to it over and over and over, and it never runs dry and it never gets old. Um, but as a young adult, we were in Texas somewhere what early twenties, mid twenties, before we were in full time ministry, and God was working that. I was learning to finally get in the Word for for myself and digest it and process it, and. This is the first one that I can ever remember the words like jumping off the page and just gra- gripping you. You know what I mean? Um, that doesn't happen regularly, probably. It doesn't happen often even for some. But ever so often, the Holy Spirit just speaks and you get something from your own Bible study that you don't hear from somebody else. And there's no mistake when that happens, that's the Holy Spirit's work. And this, that's what this was. So much so that I remember going and waking her up. From her sleep to tell her what God had just shown me. And it's this it's this it's this moment that I that I just treasure it. It made what Christ did for for us more valuable to me, if that if that makes sense. And it helped me to understand that salvation is not what about what you escape. That's benefit. But it's really about what you gain more than it is about what what you escape. Does that make sense? There's there's two parts to it. You're going to see what I mean. In, in just a little while, because the truth is that you gain much more than you realize when you gain it. So, are you with me? Um, so we're going to be in Colossians 1, and we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to kind of go through and unpack some things. But let's read the text first, and then we'll pray together. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile it to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father God, as we open your word tonight, Lord, as is true of every part of your word, but especially this has been true over the years for me, there's, there's just so much here to understand and to process. And every time I come back here, Lord, you show me more of, of who you are and what you have done. So I pray, God, that by your grace, you will uh, open our hearts and focus our minds. I would pray, Lord, ask you to help me to speak clear and speak true the truth of the person and work of my Savior and Lord and God, Jesus Christ. So I ask you to do it for your glory, not for mine, not for Duane's, not for Dorisville Baptist Church, but for your glory and your glory alone for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know that Paul is addressing Gentile believers here. Anytime you're reading a, a passage of Scripture, uh, it's important to know who the audience is, particularly in the New Testament, particularly with the letters. Okay, Because sometimes that can filter how we see it. If it's being written to Jewish believers, for example, there might be some manners and customs attached that you might need to know, might, that might help us understand. This is written to Gentile believers. Not only were they believers, they were believers of some spiritual maturity and reputation. God had worked mightily among them and he, Paul had eloquently prayed for them in that next passage up from verse 3, probably down to where we finished it, started in verse 13. Um, he prayed eloquently for them leading up to this. It's simply important to keep in mind for our purposes that it's written to believers, therefore it's written to us. And it's really written to all believers, Gentile or Jew. And in verse 13... Paul begins to launch into what I think is the most concentrated, doctrinally thick and systematic theologically teaching on the person and work of Christ in the New Testament. I, I think it rests right here. We're going to unpack it and see, see what I mean. But, and this is why it's important to, to go back to this point over and over and over and over and over and over because the person and work of Christ is where everything rests. Everything, your very life eternal, rests on the person and work of Christ. There is no other part of our faith more important than that. We talk sometimes, and I realized after we said, you know, we were talking about the cross, and some people make too much of the cross, but we were on two different wavelengths when we were talking about that. But there are some people that say we make too much of the cross, literally, in terms of theology. We can't do that. You can't make too much of the cross, and here's why. Here's why. There were lots of other people that died on crosses, did they win anything for you and I? No. Christ could have died another way, and it would not have accomplished what it did. It had to be the cross of Christ. So we have to delve into and grip, grap, gripple, grapple, grapple, grip with the person and work of Christ. And we see it here in those two parts, and so that's what we're going to do. So we're going we're gonna to unpack it kind of little bit by little bit. But in verse 13 to 14, we have kind of... If I, I, I attach that, in your Bible it may be a separate heading at verse 15. I attach it because it's kind of like a thesis statement for me as I was understanding this. So let's look at that for just a minute. Uh, and we start in verse 13 with, He has delivered us. Notice that it's past tense. We'll get to that in just a minute. And that's, that's really good. But a little bit of uh, background here. The word delivered here means rescued from danger. That's what it literally means. 
The word domain is kingdom. Now, you know I'm kind of nerdy about some of these things, unpacking the word sometimes, but it's rare and it's noteworthy that the word dominion, in terms of Satan's authority, is used here. Okay? Because it's, it's not used a lot. Um, but we know that Satan's dominion, as we see in just a little bit, his dominion is under the authority and sovereignty of God. There is no authority outside of or above God's authority. Right? That's important. That's important. That's hard, though, when you really start picking things apart, which we're going to do in just a moment. We just need to keep in mind, nothing happens outside of God's control. But the emphasis here is not so much on Satan's authority, lest we make too much of it, but it's on our bondage to it. Before we were brought into God's kingdom through faith in Christ, we were, you were, I was, under the authority of another kingdom. Okay? Another word here, the word for darkness, can have several meanings. A couple of them are blindness or hatred or misery. You were prisoners and belonged to those things. All things that Satan is and loves. Here's the big idea from the thesis statement. You are not your own. You never were. You never were. You belonged. We're talking about those who have honestly, truthfully faith in Christ. You did belong to Satan. You've been set free from Satan to serve Christ. You are his. You're not your own. You never were. But now, if you're Christ, you've been bought with a price, and that's the shed blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. But you have always belonged to someone. This is especially hard sometimes for Americans, Christians, particularly American males, that whole be your own man thing. You never were your own man. Get over it. You belong to Satan or you belong to Christ, period. And if you think otherwise, you are deceived. But you, if you have faith in Christ, and here's where we get into this, this is cool. If, if, if you have faith in Christ, you have been, past tense, transferred, repatriated, repopulated from the kingdom and authority of Satan to the kingdom and ultimate authority and protection of Jesus Christ. And it's past tense because it's done. Finished. Over. Complete. It's kind of a, for Paul, before he gets into this, theological system or uh, uh, picture of the person of Christ, it's kind of like, okay, before we get into who we're dealing with, here's the deal where you stand. You need to know this. And then he begins teaching about the one, the only one who could have done such a thing as that. And we're going to do just that by, by going through point by point. We'll begin again with Christ's person. Now, some of these might seem ap- academic to you. Just hang on till we get to the end. Okay, and the first thing that we see is we see, now that we're referencing Christ here, we're talking about the person of Christ, and the first thing we see is we see God. He is the image, verse 15, of the invisible God. And you might say, yeah, so was Adam. Well, kind of. Adam was made in God's image, right? Here, here's the key. There's a, there's a key about the word image here that... It takes a little bit of a different different uh, turn because some have translated it here likeness the same way that Adam was translated the word Adam was translated likeness but the Greek word here is uh, icon from which we get the English word icon uh, in in the old school kind of old Catholicism sense icons play a very prominent very important role this would be closer to a physical image a physical likeness the implication of this word icon is deeper than that which is kind of why they play into worship. We're not going to go down that road. You just kind of need to know the, the, the connection. The implication here is an exact likeness, but not only in appearance, but in, in essence. 
In every aspect, it is identical. In essence and nature and character. That's the image that Christ is of the invisible God. Adam and us imaged God. We are all God's image bearers. But we are such imperfectly and incompletely, right? Christ, who's called the second Adam, perfectly, completely represented, reflected, and was the invisible God and his image on earth. Okay? He was the only one who fulfills that. So the first thing we see is God. The second thing we see is man or creation. It says he's the firstborn of creation. Now, very simply put, it doesn't refer to time. Obviously, he can't chronologically be the firstborn of creation. That would be Adam, right? So it's kind of like this. Solomon was not David's firstborn son chronologically, but he was referred to as such in Psalm 89, 27. Uh, what it refers to is status. You know, in the Old Testament culture and in, the, in this culture as well, in the New Testament, the firstborn of the family carried special rights and privileges. It was a matter of status more than it was a matter of chronology. Same thing here. Christ is creation's most important member. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. His flesh was created, right? Right? And it might not be. That's, that's the truth. I mean, let's not overthink it. He was flesh as well as he was God. Okay? So we see God and we see man in the only one who could be perfectly both. Now, this is cool. We see creation, right? We also see creator in Christ. For by him and all things, all, but, let me back up. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. For by him, by Christ, all things are created. Christ was the agent of creation. He was and is creator. John 1.1. 1, 1. If you've heard Duane reference many, many times, tells us that Christ was present in the beginning. He's called the Word before he was Jesus. This verse tells us what he was doing. So now when, you, when you're talking theology with, with your friends sometimes and you make that reference to, to John 1.1, 1, 1, well, yeah, Jesus is eternal. Well, what was he doing? You can go here. This is what he was doing. He was creating. He was creating. It's interesting little, again, my nerdiness comes out. The word for here, I came across one commentator that says that word could be translated because. Now, that seems like a minor little conjunction, but it actually puts an interesting flow when you connect it. Because now it reads this way. It reads, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by him all things were created. I think that gives just a little bit clearer vision that this is the creator that we're talking about, Right? Our world is full of, I've heard a, a, a contemporary preacher uh, call it oneism and twoism. Oneism would be the New Age idea that everything is one, everything's connected, we're part of the divine, and we're to try to just kind of, you know, be enlightened and be part of one with nature and space and the cosmos and all that baloney. No, 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 no. There is creator and creation irreparably separated by sin. And there's only one way to bridge the gap. And we're looking at him right here, right now. Okay, so we see God, we see man, we see creator, creation. Then we see eternal lordship. I, I, this, this just jumped out at me. Uh, all things were created by him. Look at the last part of that verse. Uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There is no authority outside of God's authority. And it also says here uh, in verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He was not only the agent of creation, he is its benefactor. He made these things for him. He didn't make creation for you. He made it for him. 
including you. He made for him, for his own enjoyment. This reminds us of the truth that everything he does. Boy, you could go a lot of different ways with this. Everything he does, ultimately he does for his glory. So that more of his creation will see his glory and be drawn to him. Okay? We see that he was around before all things. Christ is eternal, the same as God the Father. He was God. Uh, and again, it's, you kind of could get into a teaching of the Trinity here. And we said this morning, we were kind of wrestling with that a little bit. And I said, let me just stop you. Don't try to put the Trinity here. Because you've got three separate beings that are the same being. You're not going to get it here. We know that it's true. And this is what we're seeing. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? You might not grasp it, but if the book says it, it's true. All right? Christ was, is, and always will be God. From him all things come, and by him all things are held together. In, in, our, in our day of, of apologetics and debate back and forth, many people will not accept such a simplistic answer. But the, the real simple answer for why does all this stuff and matter and atoms and things out there, why does it hold well, all together? What, what, what is it that keeps it from just flying all apart? The simple, true answer is Jesus. That's it. That is the answer. Now, we can study and learn about how it all works, and we have lots of knowledge now that we didn't have even just a couple of years ago. But the simple, true answer is it really is Jesus. He made the world. He made it the first time and with a word, and he, he gave himself for the world uh, the second time, and one day he'll be back to claim his world for a third time, and in the meantime, he's in control all the way. So we see eternal lordship. We also see authority. And this is a word, simply put, we just don't like. That's a whole other message. But um, in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead. He is the head, the firstborn of the church. And we don't need to spend a whole lot of time here because we, we, we know this, right? Or do we? Hard, honest question. How many churches could we point to? That have died slow, barely noticeable, multi-generational deaths. Because though we say this is true often, all too often we treat the church, her money, her property, her resources, her time, and her servants as though they are ours and not his. Now we just we need to just chew on that one. That's not easy. This all belongs to him. Not to us. Again, we see that phrase firstborn. He's the firstborn of the dead. Again, this is not about chronology, for he was not the first person raised from the dead. Nor was he, uh, uh, well, let me put it this way, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Did he win anything for you or I? No. Jesus, again, was the most important, singularly the most important who's been raised from the dead. And if he had not been raised from the dead, the others would either have not been possible or they wouldn't have mattered because he was and is most important because of all the other things that we've mentioned and some we haven't, but basically because of who he is. So we see God. We see man. We see creator. We see eternal lordship. We see authority. And the next thing we see is a very, 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 very important word. We see preeminence. He goes through all of these things, and then he says in verse, at the end of verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
Here's the point of everything he does and everything we believe and everything that we should hold to and flesh out. It should point to one thing. Our lives, everything should point to one thing. Christ's preeminence. It means of first importance. That's what it means. Of supreme importance. It means that everything we've said about him is true. Everything the book says about him is true. And that our lives and our testimonies should point to him above everything else. The word translated preeminence here, if I have my, my, my geeky head study right, is the only place this is used in the New Testament. I saw some eyebrows go up. This is the only place. That's according to Warren Wearsby, by the way. It points to, it magnifies, it emphasizes, it, it glorifies Christ's uniqueness. Fully God, fully man, the only possible mediator between creator and creation. He alone is Messiah, Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, and the only one who could have done what he did. He is a first place, first importance, first priority. He is and should be in your life and mine preeminent. Verse 19 and 20 reminds us again that that, uh, Christ is God fully and completely and that his work in rescuing us from Satan's kingdom was bringing them to himself and therefore to the Father. And now we get to what I think is the really good part. Now we've, we've had a treatise on Christ's person. We need to know. Listen, you may not understand that all. Just let it, just let it sink in. What, what, what got, just let it sink. Go back, read it, study it. And just this person that you claim to believe is exactly who this book says he is. But now we get to his work. And my hope is what every time I go back here happens to me is, is you see a little bit more clearly what Christ has done for you and it grips you. A little more tightly. That may not be fully descriptive of the cross itself of the event, but it gives a great view of what was accomplished there. Perhaps, perhaps in a way you've not considered. Now we get to the point that I like to call the holy exchange. And Paul turns his attention to us, to his readers, with two words, very pointed. And you. He's speaking to believers. He is speaking by the Holy Spirit to us, particularly to those of us who are believers, who are growing, evidencing, maturing, true believers. This is who he's speaking to, not those sinners out there, us. This is this is not pleasant. We don't like to think of where we were. We don't like to think of. But we should, and we're going to see why in a moment. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Those are harsh words because they tell us three things. It tells us that we were enemies of God. You see, holy God cannot have fellowship with sinful man. They are at enmity with one another. And that is where we stand apart from Christ. You were enemies of God. That's alienated. The second thing, and this is where it just gets hard, but this is what it says. You were actively rebellious, hostile in mind. You weren't just ignorant. You were hostile in mind toward God. Let me put it this way. 
Nobody is disobedient out of duty. You're disobedient. We are. We brought. We sin because that's what we are. We are sinners, right? And here's the hard part. Before Christ, if we're honest with ourselves, particularly those of us who came to Christ later in life, we weren't just sinners. We loved it. We loved sinning. That's what sinners do. And he points back to us believers and said, now don't forget, you're just like the people you want to call sinners. And he says, you are enemies of God, you're actively rebellious, and doing evil deeds there is an act of the will. An act of the will. A willing act of the will. You were enemies of God, actively rebellious, enjoying your sin. See, we like to think that because before we were saved and we were lost, we didn't really like what we were doing. We were just doing... No, 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 no. Romans 12, 3, I constantly find myself going back to that verse for myself. It tells us, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. We must remember that we're not just here to reach those sinners out there. We are those sinners out there. We are. And how dare we think more of ourselves than we ought to. The only difference between us and them day to day is that we've been rescued from the eternal consequences of it and they have not. And their sin should not make us angry. Their sin should not make us offended. There's only one person that has the right to be offended by sin. And it's not you or me. It's holy God. It should break our hearts. Because that's where we were. Then we get to verse 22. We are reconciled. We were rescued by Christ's death on the cross. Remember holy God? And here's sinful man. Here's what we need to remember. God is perfect and holy he, and He's loving and He's merciful, but He is right in everything He does. And the wrath of this holy God was coming for you. Well, yeah, but I grew up in church. Yeah, and sinful man and the wrath of God is coming for you. Man, or God, man, Christ. But Christ came. Oh, come on. Holy God, the wrath is on its way to sinful man. We are doomed, we are done, we're finished. But Christ came! And He died, a cross, died on a cross in your place. And the wrath of God is coming and Christ steps in that, that substitutionary death and says, Wait a minute! This one is ours. This one is mine. Now, we, we know that. We've, we, we've preached sermons about that. We sing songs about that. Him for us. His love for us. His death for us. But there's another side to this holy exchange. Look at the second half of verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I ask you a question. We know where sinful man stands before holy God, right? Who is the only person that has the right to stand in that place before holy God? Jesus. 
He's the only one. Some of you are getting what's coming. Here's the other side. Not only does He take your place in the next time we sing in Christ alone and you get to that line, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Think of this moment. He took your place. But not only does He take your place, He allows you to stand where only He should be able to stand in His place, positionally, before God. We don't need to, we do not need to ask the question, are we perfect in our practice? We are not. But when we make that exchange, positionally, we are in Christ's place. Let me put it to you this way. Here I stand, dirty, rotten, sinful to the core me. And here comes the wrath of God. But if I faith in Christ, if I have faith in Christ, when He gets here, He doesn't see me. He sees Christ. And the wrath of God is satisfied and does not come and annihilate me. And He lets me stand before God where only He should stand. A holy, that, is, that means a set apart, uniquely different. Not because of me, because of Christ. Blameless. This refers to the Old Testament sacrificial system about the perfect lamb that was required in the sacrifice. Above reproach. This one's good. You know, you realize what this one means? Positionally before God, you are free from accusation. In the court of God, you are free from accusation. The next time the accuser comes to you and starts jabbing you in the side, that's one of his names, by the way, the accuser of the brethren. The next time he comes and starts reminding you and brings shame back into your mind and brings guilt back into your heart, you can go back to this passage and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't have to answer for that anymore. And we're not talking about sins you commit. You have to repent of those. We don't want to go too far that way. But these are things in the past that he keeps bringing up in your mind over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. You don't have to answer for those anymore. Why? Because we've just seen the work is done. Not only did he take our place on the cross in the pl- we try to make the cross very pretty sometimes. It was not pretty. It was a place of death and punishment and shame and it was brutal and ugly and violent. And he took that on our behalf. Not to mention the unimaginable weight of the guilt of sin of all of us laying on him. But not only did He do that for us, He allows us, you and I who have faith in Him, to stand where only He should stand. Set apart, free from penalty, and free from accusation. When you stand redeemed, you stand free. You stand where you do not deserve. Not only do you not get what you do deserve, death, punishment, guilt, shame, hell, you get what you don't deserve, forgiveness, righteousness, freedom, Holiness, all from Christ imputed to me through His death on the cross. And that is what I call the holy exchange. And that should light your fire. That is what should fuel your life in Christ. That's it. Not points, not checklists, not do's and don'ts. Not what other people will think. Not your religious obligation. Look at verse 23 quickly. We have to be careful here lest we slip into legalism. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The if here is not actuary. It doesn't cause anything. 
It is evidentiary. Does that make sense? In other words, these things are not true, the holy exchange that is, truly if you do these things, but if you do these things, it demonstrates that you are saved. Does that make sense? For those, for those of us that grew up in church and we knew how to be good guys long before we were really good guys in Christ, sometimes, and this is where some of us, I don't know if you know who Tim Hawkins is. He's a, he's a Christian comedian, and if you've not seen him, you need to see him. He's absolutely hilarious. And he gives this great story about the guy who stands up and gives his testimony about being on drugs, and he was a church kid, being on drugs and how he hit rock bottom and... and uh, <laughs> And, and this miraculous transformation, how God saved him from drugs and saved him from all these things. He says, here I am as the church kid, never done anything bad. I'm like, thanks, God. I don't have as good a testimony as that guy. <laughs> Here's the thing. Those of us that kind of learned the things to do, the outside may not look a lot different. Right? But the inside is completely different. Some of you know what I'm talking about. On the outside, it may look very similar, but there is a world of difference. When you move from doing stuff to try to earn something from God, when you realize you can't because it's already done, and you move to doing those same things because of what He has done for you. It makes a world of difference in your joy and your peace. And you quit doing things out of duty and you start doing them out of love and joy because you can't help do anything else. I say to my choir sometimes, I pray when we come back on Sunday, we can't shut up about how good our God is. That's kind of what it is. It just flows. He says, yes, be holy. Please God. Flee from sin. Do good deeds. But don't do these things to try to make this true for you because that's not possible. Do them. Because it is true for you, if you have faith in Christ. So we see the person and work of Christ. And as, we, as you encounter like this, when, when you hear something like this, I kind, of, I kind of think we fall into three groups of people. First is the person who has never really experienced the holy exchange. You are lost and you know it. You know it. You are still alienated from God. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, which might not be bad stuff. You might not be a drug pusher. It might be simply living for yourself other than God, rather than God. And you're wondering, what do I do? You need to repent of your sin, trust the person and work of Christ and what he did on the cross fully and completely, and give your life to him. That's what you need to do. That death that we just spoke of, you're one of the ones he did it for. You are under the wrath of God, as we've just seen. And if I, I hope, you know what? I hope that makes you just even a little bit afraid. I hope it makes you more than a little bit. And as Paul said, I hope it causes you grief because godly grief leads to repentance. I don't want you to go out mad. Who's that preacher think he is? That's not godly grief. But if you're like, I don't want the wrath of God, then come to Christ. You need to repent, trust Christ, and give your life to Him. Second, maybe the person who got saved a long time ago, you were baptized as a child, and life's thrown you some curveballs, and for whatever reason, you've not continued in the faith. You lack evidence. 
Maybe you have sinned and you know it, but somewhere back there is this thing that you did in church. But you know you've not made God a priority. You know you've not ordered your life by Him. You've gotten involved in things you know you shouldn't. Now, it is possible, and we in Baptist churches, frankly, are prone to hold this up too frequently. It is possible, though, that that salvation experience long ago was genuine. In which case, you know what you need to do? You need to repent and go back to the cross and start reordering your life. But if you have this event and there's never been any evidence, it is more likely that you were not truly transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's more likely that you've been brought into a religion and there's no relationship with this Savior we speak of. You want to know what you need to do? Repent. Trust Christ and His work on the cross as your Savior and give Him your life as your Lord. Never to be the same. And third, the believer. You've, you've faithed in Christ. You know Him as your Savior. Perhaps you know a little bit more now about what Christ has done for you. Maybe He's, maybe he's pricked your heart even tonight that you haven't been completely honoring Him in your daily life as one who stands positionally, holy, blameless, and above reproach. You've not been making Christ preeminent. Maybe He's revealed an area of your life in which Christ is not preeminent, and you need to give that more to Him. If you've seen my business card or my blog or an email, you see John 3.30 at the bottom. And it says, that my tagline is, less of me and more of Him. That's what repentance is. I'm trying to give, I'm repenting of sin, so I'll be less like me and more like Him. And you see an area tonight. You need to make Christ preeminent. You want to take a guess what you need to do? You need to repent. Turn back to the cross. Revel in this greater view of the person who has done what he has done for you. And the work that is accomplished, finished, done, complete for you. Revel in it. Repent of whatever this is and turn back to him. And the next step you take, take it to make him preeminent. That's what you do. So how do we end? This is how we end. We come. We repent. We trust Christ. If we know Him already, we affirm Him again as Christ and Savior. And we worship Him for what He's done. We faith in Christ. I'm going to ask Val to to come up to the piano in just a moment as as I pray. Um, Dave, can you lead this song in just a minute? Um, it's only trust him, I think. And I like that song because it does point to the simplicity of the matter. But you can't just believe. You all know, even the demons believe. Where's your evidence? How is your life pointing to Christ as preeminent? And a greater question could be, have you ever really made him preeminent by trusting in him? And this is harder sometimes for us that grew up in church. Because, you know, I mean, I know I need grace, but not as much as that guy. Yes, you do. Because we were enemies of God. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. He had to reach as far for us as he did for the worst. Because guess what? We're the worst. So we're going to pray. We're going to open the altar. And uh, I'll be here and Dwayne will be here. Perhaps he's pricked your heart. 
If, if you're here and you know you need to trust Him as Savior, please don't wait. Please don't wait. Oh, it's a Sunday night. Well, I don't know what they're going to think. Don't worry about what they, they think. You've got a holy God to be concerned with at the moment. Come meet your Savior. Father God, thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for what you have done. What you have done for our good and for your glory. We know and we see a a greater understanding that you really are the only one who could have done it. And I'm grateful that you did. Father, I do not know every heart here. You do because you made them. You made us so you know us. You know what you want to work in every heart. I thank you for what you are working in me as I go back to this scripture over and over and over. So I pray, God, that right now you will do what only you can do. We cannot make converts. That is not our job. But if there's one of your needs to know you, Lord, draw them. If there's a believer here, a Christ follower, which quite frankly is all of us, who needs to continue to repent and follow you more closely, help us to do it. And you know the specifics of each life of what that needs to look like. Show us, Lord, so we can do it. As we sing, you do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.